Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSellaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 24th, 2020, and this is show number 785. Well, we're down in San Diego with our grandson, Forbes, and we got to get him together with his sister, Sienna, brand new Sienna, and brand new Kennedy, our other granddaughter. So we had all three grandkids together all at the same time, and it was absolutely wonderful. So that is why we're on a different mic, and also why you should never go to the live show, because we subjected them to crying babies and toddlers taking over the microphone. Well, on this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, I was joined by the most awesome Lori Gill, managing editor of iMore and co-host of MacBreak Weekly on the Twit Network. Lori and I had an absolute blast talking about all things Apple. We talked about the supposedly seamless interface of the Magic Trackpad for iPad Pro and why when things never had existed before arrive only 50 to 70% baked, then we feel like something was taken away, even though that 50 to 70% we got was actually something positive. Anyway, then we talked about WWDC and whether we're looking forward to new operating systems after the somewhat challenging experience we all went through last year with Catalina and iOS 13. Then we had some fun speculating on rumored hardware products for this year, like iPhone 12, Apple Tags, and AirPod Studio. Lori and I had a fabulous time chatting, and we've already planned out the next chit-chat we're going to do, which is a really good thing because so many people wrote in telling me, have her on as often as possible. You should definitely go listen to this episode over at podfeed.com or in your podcatcher of choice by searching for Chit Chat Across the Pond Light. During the live show last week, when I was playing all of the wonderful recordings from listeners about what the podcast meant to them, I had a thought in the back of my head, just this little niggling thought that it was curious that Joe from the Northwoods hadn't sent in a recording. Now, it's not that I expect anyone to do it, that it's far from it, but it, it, just something, it just seemed like something swell she would do. And then this week, I was trying to clean out my email. I'm past the 17 gigabytes allowed by Google. And I was sorting my mail by the largest attachment size. And as I was scraping things out, I came to an email from Jill from April 24th with her audio contribution for the 15-year anniversary. I couldn't believe it. She was so prompt at sending it in that I hadn't yet set up a folder to collect all of them. And I 100% forgot that she sent it in. I felt like such a heel. Well, the worst part was that she was actually in the live show and she never made a peep about it. I suppose she was waiting to see when it was going to play and then it never did play, but that's even worse. Anyway, I'm going to try to make some small amends for that by, by playing her recording for you now. I still will always feel badly about missing it, though. Hi, this is Jill. I want to wish Allison a happy 15th anniversary and Steve, too, on a successful, wonderful podcast. It's one of my favorites and one that I must listen to the moment it downloads to my phone. I love the way Allison describes things. She has a very fine, detailed explanation that paints a vivid picture. Even when I've been on airplanes and I couldn't possibly look up what it is she's talking about, I can see it in my mind's eye and know immediately what she's talking about. The security bits are fantastic with BART. I love listening to what's new and going on in the world of security. I take it very seriously. And this information has helped me in many cases make wise decisions. And Allison, in her way that she's able to formulate a good argument for what makes good technology useful, 
safe, and effective is just fantastic. I really appreciate her high expectations when it comes to technology, gadgets, and software. I've come to trust many things that she said and have bought those items based on her recommendation. Heck, I even bought a MacBook after being a lifelong Windows user. So congratulations to Allison and Steve, and I look forward to many more years to come. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jill, for joining the Podfeet community and becoming such a great contributor to it yourself. I so look forward to your audio contributions and your commentary in the live show. Now, everybody else listening, do you see why I felt like such a heel when I heard this and realized I forgot to play it? I really had no choice. Well, as you can imagine, last week's episode of the NoSillaCast was pure joy for me because of all the wonderful audio recordings sent in by so many NoSillaCastaways. Now, you know I'm committed to giving people the content the way they want it, so I really wanted to be able to provide the messages in those audio recordings that everybody sent in to those who prefer to or must get their content by reading and not listening. A few people sent in written transcripts of their submissions, but the vast majority were audio only. Back in January, I told you about a cool web-based transcription service called otter.ai, and I wondered if I could use it to transcribe the audio recordings. The free version of otter.ai allows you to import audio files and have them transcribed automatically. That's pretty sweet, but it only allows three imports per month on the free plan. Again, pretty darn generous for a free plan. The paid-for plan is inexpensive at $10 month-to-month or $100 per year, and I've paid it before, but I wondered if I had the tools to get the job done without it. Any tool that accepts audio input will be looking for a physical hardware device in the form of a microphone. For example, if you go to Skype or Zoom or Google Hangout or otter.ai, they expect you to select your physical microphone as the input source. But in the problem we're solving today, we want to play the audio recordings using something like QuickTime and then use that application as the input to otter.ai. We need a way to pipe audio into this service as though it was a microphone. Enter my heroes, the people at Rogue Amoeba. I use two other tools to accomplish my goal loopback, and audio hijack. Here's how the two apps combine to solve the problem at hand. Loopback allows you to create virtual audio devices. You can do some crazy advanced stuff with loopback, but one of the simplest and frankly most valuable things you can create is called a pass-through device. The idea is that any audio you send to that pass-through device as the output will then be able to go directly into one of these web-based tools. In Loopback, I simply added a new virtual device, and I named it otter.ai. By default, all virtual devices in Loopback include a pass-through block, and that's all I needed. I should mention there's nothing magical about the name I chose, but I named it otter.ai so I could easily identify it by its intended use in my list of audio input devices. As soon as that virtual device is created in Loopback, it is now available all throughout the operating system, even when Loopback isn't running, It's as though it's a physical device permanently connected to your Mac. Now that I have this virtual audio device, I can use it in Audio Hijack. Audio Hijack allows you to drag and drop these little blocks on screen to represent input and output devices, and you can add tons of other features in between. As my input source, I chose an application block, and I set it to the application QuickTime. Then I dragged in an output device and selected the virtual device I created using Loopback called otter.ai. It's going to be get a little bit headbendy here because I just told you that the output is otter.ai, but in a minute, otter.ai is going to be the input to our application. Kind of weird. 
Pass-through devices from loopback are sort of magical that way. Since they aren't physical devices, they can act as either input or output, and sometimes both at the same time. It's crazy. With Audio Hijack set up with QuickTime as the input and Otter.ai as the output, I could have used this to send audio to Otter.ai, but I wouldn't have been able to hear the audio playing in QuickTime. I had hijacked it, as it were, and sent it to this virtual device so I wouldn't be able to play it through my speakers. Luckily, with Audio Hijack, you can have multiple output devices. So I dragged in a second audio output device and I pointed that to my internal speakers. Note that there was another way to allow me to hear QuickTime when I was hijacking it. In loopback, when you create a virtual audio device, like my pass-through device called Otter.ai, you can add a monitor and set it to your speaker of choice. This would have eliminated the need for adding my speakers to the audio hijack session. Either way works. Okay, we've done the groundwork to start piping the audio recordings into the otter.ai transcription service, so let's make it happen. After logging into my otter.ai account, I needed to push the red start button in audio hijack. Then I need to open the audio file in QuickTime. I don't want to click play in QuickTime just yet. Before I do that, I need to hit the record button in otter.ai's interface and then hit play in QuickTime. Otter.ai will already be recording and QuickTime starts to play and I can see the yellow lines start moving in Audio Hijack and I can hear the audio from QuickTime. Otter.ai helpfully also shows you a, a wiggly audio waveform to indicate that it's receiving audio. Now I have the fun of watching Otter.ai try to interpret the voice of people from all over the world and hopefully understand what they're saying so they can type it out on screen. Otter.ai instantaneously displays the text of its understanding of the audio that it's hearing. And it's pretty good, but not great. When you stop the recording in Otter.ai, it goes off and analyzes and improves the transcription. Otter.ai offers to send you a notification when it's done analyzing, but with short recordings like these, I was able to just wait a few minutes till it was done. Once the transcription process was finished, I used the editing functions from within Otter.ai. It's pretty cool. You can edit while it's playing and it will automatically back up and replay what you've corrected. If you'd rather stop and start, there are some keystrokes for that sort of thing. Now, there's one thing that I didn't put in the show notes that is very curious to me. I was very successful with this process with my Mac plugged into my dock, with my monitor, with my microphone, with ethernet and everything else that's plugged in. But when I tried to use it without being plugged into anything at all, I found that the audio playback into otter.ai started stuttering and I don't understand exactly what was going wrong because it should have just been playing from QuickTime. I don't understand why it would have stuttered. Uh, I don't really know quite what was going wrong with it, but when I was plugged into everything, it could have been power. It could have been ethernet. I'm not really sure why it didn't work well, but anyway, everything did work really well the way I was doing it. Now, here's why I'm telling you all of this. 22 separate people, from the United States, New Zealand, Germany, Australia, Japan, and even Wisconsin, use the word nosilicast in their audio submissions. Watching otter.ai try to guess what the word was simply delighted me. If you're the only voice otter.ai has to listen to, you can train it on unusual words. But with the disparity of voices, the poor thing didn't have a chance. Otter.ai's attempts to spell nosilicast, nosilicastaways, and Nosilicast podcast were hilarious. It suggested in no uh, no certain order, Nosilius podcast. 
Now, Cilius is S-I-L-I-C-E-O-U-S. I had to look that up. Cilius means containing silica, which is the major constituent of sand. The next one was Technocilla castaway. I liked no silicon. How about Missoula cast? I don't know where it got that one. There was no silver cast and nice little cast. I thought that one was cute. But the winner and the one it wrote most often was no Scylla cast. But Scylla was spelled capital S-C-Y-L-L-A. That got me to wondering whether Scylla was actually, actually meant something. So I looked that one up too. According to the built-in Apple Dictionary, Scylla means Greek mythology, a female sea monster who devoured sailors when they tried to navigate the narrow channel between her cave and the whirlpool Charybdis. Charybdis, that's what it is. All right, so that's awesome. It's awesome that it's a female sea monster. I just really, really like that. But there's an even more interesting twist to this story. You may wonder why my show has such a dumb name. I had a dear friend named Eric who unfortunately passed away at a young age. He was one of the most brilliant and hilarious people I've ever known. Buried in the about pages of podfeed.com, there's an email Eric sent to me in December of 2003, which was the basis for the name of the NoSilicast podcast. Here is an excerpt from that email. It occurred to me that your name spelled backwards is NoSilla. This may be something you have already considered, but it made me think of a giant Japanese monster. Or a nasal spray. So this got me thinking about a great idea for a movie screenplay. A nuclear accident causes this giant monster to wake from its nest under the sea, and it comes ashore in Osaka. Instead of teeth or fangs or anything bloody like that, when its abdomen is squeezed, it emits a misty spray out of its butt, which will cause all of the nasal membranes of the Japanese people to shrink to such an extent that their nasal cavities become overly large. This results in massive chaos as karaoke bars all around the island are filled with these little Japanese men singing like Barry White. If I can sell this screenplay, I will cut you in on the deal because you are my inspiration. I want to get John Houseman to play the monster if he's available and still alive, and Britney Spears will be his love interest. So, I now realize that Eric's idea was not original at all. He was simply plagiarizing Greek mythology. And to think I dedicated the show partially to him. You might also understand why when people ask me where I got the idea for the name of the show... I say it's my name spelled backwards, and then I quickly change the subject. Well, our hero of the week is Zohar Zimmerman. Zohar went to podfeed.com slash Patreon and pledged his hard-earned dollars to support the NoSilicast. He showed that he gets value out of the podcast by giving some value back. The cool thing is that Zohar is 100% in control of how much he pledges and the frequency of his pledge, and he can cancel it at any time that he feels it isn't right for him. I simply love that. Thank you, Zohar, for your generous support of the PodFeed podcast. Two weeks ago, I told you about a $16 camera kit for mobile phones from a company called Creaser. My title questioned whether that could possibly be any good. As I explained the downsides of a cheap kit like this, you know, lens aberration, for example, I also explained I was having a great time with it. Now I thought it was totally worth the $16 I spent. Since then, I've continued to enjoy that kit even more. As you recall, this kit came with a 1.5x macro and a 0.6x wide-angle lens. You can use the macro lens alone or the macro plus wide-angle 
but the wide angle can only be used with the macro lens already attached. Since these lenses can only fit over one of your phone's lenses, if you have a fancy phone with two or even three lenses, you can only use the primary lens with this lens kit. That eliminates special functions like 2x zoom, wide angle, and portrait photography when using the Creaser lenses. But after writing up this article, I realized that some special functions don't require anything but the primary lens, like 1x video and even slow-mo. For Mother's Day, Steve and my kids got me an embarrassment of flowers, and all three bouquets included my favorite flower, the lily. Lily smelled fantastic, especially the star lily. In the center of the lily are several stamens with boat-shaped anthers on the end that are designed primarily to sprinkle reddish-brown pollen all over your counter, which stains absolutely everything. The reason I'm giving you this important information is because of something Dorothy said. When she got me back into the kick of macro photography, she said that you'll start to notice things you never saw before because you weren't looking closely enough. I put the macro lens on my iPhone and I got up super close, less than one inch away from these boat-shaped anthers sprinkling pollen all over the place. And as I was getting close, I bumped the flower with my hand. To my delight, I noticed that the anther are actually suspended on a point of the stamen and they pivot on that point. That's when I got the idea to do a slow-mo video of that tiny anther rocking on the point of the stamen. It is such a cool video. I put the 11-second-long 11 11 slow-mo video in the show notes, of course. As a reward to Dorothy, I sent her a really cool macro shot of a snail. I did that because she hates snails. At the end of my discussion about that $16 camera kit, I told you I found an $11 kit from Creaser that might be even more fun. So to hold off on buying that first one until I got the second one and gave it a play. You don't want to waste 16 bucks, right? All right, this $11 kit comes with a crazy amount of stuff. It comes with a 12x telephoto lens, which was the main reason I wanted to try this kit. It comes with a 198 degree fisheye lens and then a 1.5x macro lens and a wide, the 0.63x wide angle lens, and it says attached together. There's a phone holder for the tripod. There's a tripod, two phone clips, a handy carrying bag, and enough lens caps that you will always seem to have a couple of them left over. As I mentioned, the 12x telephoto, which they call a zoom, but it's really a telephoto, was the real attraction for me in this kit. I've been in so many situations where if I just had a long lens for my iPhone, I've been able to get that one shot. Well, aligning the original kit's lenses to my iPhone's primary lens is absolutely trivial because you can see through the lens attachment to your phone's lens. Makes it super easy to get it just right. The 12x zoom, or telephoto, from Creaser is really long, which means you actually can't see through it to your camera lens. The opening is also much smaller, so it's actually a bit tricky to get it aligned. I found that no matter how I wiggled it around, I got some vignetting on one corner. I decided I could just crop that out and post. Now, I said the zoom is long. It's nearly four inches long and one and a quarter inches in diameter. That's 10 centimeters by three and a half centimeters for those of you with of metric persuasion. The length and power of the telephoto mean that you lose a lot of light with it. In a practical sense, I found that taking photos indoors with the telephoto, my iPhone 11 Pro would go into night mode where it took a series of one-second exposures and stacked them. 
you don't have a phone with that feature, your photos might be blurry or too dark if you use this uh, lens indoors. Now, you might think that focusing that far away with the 12x zoom would be problematic, but this little telephoto actually has a focus ring that works remarkably well. Remember, the entire kit with four lenses and a tripod is $11. Now, I think the reason it's so easy to focus this long telephoto lens is because you have a great display to see how well it's focusing. Instead of a tiny LCD display inside a big girl camera, you've actually got like a six inch display of your phone to see if you're in focus. Now outdoors during daytime, this lens had no problem in terms of light. I took a photo of the high voltage sign on the top of a power pole nearby, first with the 1X lens on the iPhone and compared it to the 12X telephoto. And it really shows off how long this lens is. And in the uh, photo in the show notes, you can also see the vignetting where I couldn't get it quite perfectly aligned. The lens quality is not great, of course, and I didn't expect it to be. The sharpness is isolated to only the very middle of the image. So while the words high voltage are fairly crisp in the center, as soon as you get out to the arms of the power pole, it gets blurry. I took another shot of a little bird watering stand up against a fence, and again, the quality of the lens is evident. And the vignetting. It's kind of a cool artsy-fartsy effect, though, and there's something very pleasing about this shot to me. One thing I neglected to mention in my previous review is that the lens clips they provide go right over your case. Not having to remove the case for your phone is probably the thing that makes these lenses most likely to be used. Speaking of the lens clips, I mentioned that this $11 kit comes with two of them. I thought at first they did this just to make it easier to swap between lenses. But for reasons I cannot fathom, the thread on the 12X telephoto is just barely different than the thread on the macro lens. I kept trying to thread one of them into one of the other clips, and while it looked like it should fit and it felt really close, it just wouldn't thread. So I switched to the second one, and it worked. I noticed a tiny instruction manual, and it actually said that they're dedicated clips. If I were trying to get cost down to 11 bucks, though, man, I would have made those threads the same. One final thought before we move into the other accessories. This little 12X telephoto lens can actually be used just with your eye like a monocular. That's pretty cool. I gave it to my grandson Forbes and let him run around with it using it, you know, to, as a, as a uh, monocular, like half a binoculars. And he loved it, you know, and uh, my daughter and son-in-law were like, oh, wait, don't break it. It's $11. I mean, the whole kit is $11. I would still have three lenses left after this was broken. So it's not a big deal. Might be fun just for, uh, you know, just for that purpose. The original kit, the $16 kit, comes with a 15x macro lens that's 1.6 inches in diameter and 0.25 inches thick, and it can focus about an inch away from the target. I bought the $11 kit for the telephoto, but I noticed it also came with a macro lens that showed the same 15x as the one in the $11 kit. The $11 kit version is way, way tinier though. It is three quarters of an inch in diameter and 0.38 inch, inches thick. I'm talking the size of like maybe two dimes stuck together. I slapped on the macro lens from the $11 kit and I was sad to find out that it didn't really work as a macro lens at all. I took a bunch of comparison shots to see how the primary lens of the iPhone 11 Pro and that same lens with the tiny version of the 15X macro compared. I couldn't focus any closer to the target with the macro than I could with my iPhone. I was disappointed and I actually started penning a letter to Creaser. They include an email address in that tiny manual. I wasn't shaking my fist or even wagging my finger at them. 
again, $11. But I thought it was interesting that all of the other lenses did something, but the macro didn't do anything at all. Before sending, though, I wanted some better comparison shots. I took some photos of the tiny fisheye lens. It's a nice, nice small target to sit in one place on my desk. I took a closer look at the shots, and I noticed that the background was bendy and distorted with the tiny macro and not distorted on the regular iPhone lens photos. I still didn't send my email, but I got started writing this article up. I wanted to make sure I got all of the specs right, and that's when I noticed something interesting. In the description of the macro lens, which you actually heard me read, it says, macro lens and wide angle attached together. I took a closer look at my lens, and sure enough, this itty-bitty, teeny-weeny lens was actually two lenses screwed together. I unscrewed the wide-angle lens from the macro, and now the macro was only a quarter of an inch thick. That is crazy pants. I'm also not the first person to not realize the two lenses were attached to each other. In the ad on Amazon, it says, the macro lens and wide-angle lens are attached together while you receive them. Not lens missing! In all capital letters. Oh, well, I'm glad I didn't send that letter. More importantly, the macro lens now worked and worked really well. I went back to taking photos uh, of the tiny fisheye lens with the iPhone's primary camera and then with the itty-bitty macro lens, and the difference was extraordinary. I also compared that tiny macro with the macro from the original kit, and the images were really quite similar. It's funny to think that the original macro lens I got now feels massive to me, like I'm not carrying that around. This little 15X macro lens is so small, you could keep it, I mean, literally in your billfold and never even notice it. The clip to hold it takes up a bit of room, uh, two and a half inches by an inch. But if you're super skilled at keeping your fat fingers out of the photo, you can actually hold, hand hold the lens to the iPhone and get a macro shot. Took me a long time to get one shot that looked any good. Well, like the original kit, the wide angle lens only functions when screwed onto the macro lens. And like the stupid, expensive $16 version, I mean, who spends that kind of money? At 0.63x, it's pretty close to the iPhone 11 Pro's 0.5x in wide-angleness. I'm not a big wide-angle person, so I'm going to move along in my uh, thoughts about it here. But if you don't have a wide-angle lens on your phone, iPhone or Android, you might want to check this wide-angle lens out. Well, the real party in this kit is the fisheye lens. This lens creates the kind of photos you have to post sparingly or people get sick of them. I chased our, our pets around for a while and I got an absolutely hilarious shot of our cat, Ada. She stuck her nose right at the lens and it is huge in the photo. I made certain to send that picture to Dorothy too, after sending her the snail photo, and she aptly described our cat, Ada, as looking like a gopher in the photo. While every piece of optics so far has met the tech specs listed in the Amazon ad, the fisheye lens is simply not the 198 degrees they advertise. 180 is the most you could possibly get if the glass was flush with the front of the metal ring holding it. The glass would actually have to be bulging out of the metal ring holding it in order to go beyond 180. The lens not only does it bulge out, but it's also set back a little bit from the front of the ring holding it. In my super accurate measurements using a protractor I saved of my dad's from the 1960s, the whole protractor is only an inch and a half across, I estimate that I can only see about 60 degrees off center to either side or a total of 120 degrees, not 198 degrees. This inaccuracy in the spec does not detract one little bit from the giggle I get each time I look at the ridiculous photo of my cat. 
Okay, I can't believe I'm still not done telling you about everything you get for $11 from Creaser with this kit. The last thing is the phone, phone holder and tripod. The phone holder is a simple plastic frame with a metal clamp held by a very tight spring mechanism. It's actually a bit tricky to get over the width of an iPhone 11 Pro, so I don't think it would fit the max size phones. It has rubber on any surface that touches the phone, so you're in no danger of scratching it up. The frame has a standard quarter 20 thread, so it can easily mount on the tripod or any other tripod. The tripod stands five inches tall without the phone holder, and believe it or not, has an adjustable ball head so you can turn a little handle and adjust the angle of the phone. I still can't believe this thing is $11 for everything. Anyway, that's why I'm laughing that it actually has adjustments in a ball head. So on that, if you adjust this ball head, you can turn the phone from landscape to portrait with this adjustment, but in portrait, the imbalance is too much for the little legs and the tripod falls over. I guess you could use it to steady an indoor shot with that big telephoto, but you'd have to keep your hands on it. I cannot believe how much fun I have had with this $11 lens kit from Creaser. I'd have paid 11 bucks just for the shot of my cat and the fisheye lens alone. Steve has been watching me play with this, and I've been running in with new photos to show him. He thinks I got $11 worth of fun in a single day. Well, I'm guessing right now your life is a little bit boring. So maybe, no matter how cool your phone's camera is, give yourself a little treat. Buy the $11 Creaser Lens Kit and give yourself a little bit of joy. I've been having some interesting fun with the keyboards for my Mac in the last few weeks. By fun, I mean aggravation, fiddliness, and experimentation. Let's lay out my use case first so I can explain the problem to be solved. I probably should use a desktop instead of a laptop for my podcasting work and then have a laptop for when I'm mobile. But I really like having everything on the same machine. My MacBook Pro spends a great deal of its life acting as a desktop plugged into an external monitor with an external keyboard and trackpad. When I first started with this setup, I was using the original Apple wireless keyboard. You know, the one with the AA batteries and the little chiclet keys? I love that keyboard. Then in October of 2015, Apple came out with the new and improved Magic Keyboard and Magic Trackpad. The new and improved Magic Keyboard and Trackpad was rechargeable via a lightning cable. The keyboard sported the same chiclet keys and the trackpad was the new gloriously big one with the fake click. The overall design of both devices was much improved and I was immediately a fan and never looked back. A few weeks ago though, my beloved Magic Keyboard started acting weird. There started to be a lag between I type, when I typed on the keyboard and when text would come out on screen. I was also getting a lot of typos. I'm a touch typist and that was pretty unusual for me. It was intermittent, which is always fun, and it was driving me crazy. The first thing I thought of was maybe I was having a battery problem. Usually I get a pop-up telling me to charge the device, but I was it was pretty easy to just plug in a lightning cable just in case. The minute I did that, the problem completely stopped. I was able to type without any lag at all. I left it plugged in for a while, but when I unplugged it, the problem immediately came back. If plugging it in solved me, sorry, solved it, and it wasn't a battery problem, then it must be a Bluetooth problem. Something might be interfering with the signal. Turns out Bluetooth is at 2.45 gigahertz, which is awfully darn close to one of the Wi-Fi bands, so that meant there were a lot of potential contributors to interference. I spent some time pondering what I might have changed recently in terms of 2.4 gigahertz devices, but I couldn't think of any likely candidates as the root cause. Of course, I turned Bluetooth off and on again, as one does, but it didn't help. While I continued to ponder Bluetooth as the root cause without success, 
I tried to think of other things that could be wrong. Maybe the keyboard itself was actually failing. That poor magic keyboard had really put in some hard time. I write approximately 5,000 words per week just for the blog alone, not counting anything else I do. So in the four years and seven months I've owned that poor thing, it has typed at least 1.2 million words. Maybe it was time to let her go into retirement. I decided to order a new magic keyboard from the Apple store. I wasn't sure how long it would take to get a new keyboard, and this one was driving me batty. I needed another keyboard to use while I awaited the new one's arrival because it really was unbearable. I have that brand new magic keyboard for the iPad Pro, and I wondered, is there some way I could use that with my Mac? Surprisingly, the answer is yes, with a little trick. On later model Macs, with later model iPads all running the latest operating systems, you can enable a feature called Sidecar that allows you to use the iPad as an external monitor. Once you've got that working, any keyboard connected to the iPad becomes a keyboard for the Mac while Sidecar is enabled. If this worked well, it would do two things. I'd be able to type on my Mac without losing my mind, and if the root cause of the Mac's magic keyboard problems was Bluetooth interference, maybe the iPad's magic keyboard would exhibit the same lag problem. Interestingly enough, using Sidecar, there was no lag whatsoever using the iPad's magic keyboard. That seemed to add credence to the idea that the old magic keyboard was indeed failing. But there's still the question of the actual usability of the magic keyboard for iPad as a keyboard for the Mac. There were a couple of things that made it less than a stellar experience to live in Sidecar. Let me ask you this, how many times do you use Command Tab to switch apps? I use it all the time. But it does nothing at all when you hit those keys on the iPad in sidecar mode. Command Space doesn't launch Spotlight either. Now, if you're not in sidecar mode on the iPad, these keys do do what they're supposed to do. But when you're in sidecar mode, they don't do anything at all. Also, the lack of a function key means I can't do a true delete by using function backspace. And I actually use that all the time, too. The other weird thing is something I mentioned in my review of the Magic Keyboard for iPad. The trackpad on the iPad keyboard doesn't work in Sidecar, which is really annoying. It seems that the Sidecar developers and the Magic Keyboard people just didn't really talk to each other as much as they should have. I also tried using the Magic Trackpad for the Mac with Sidecar on iPad, which is sort of mind-bendy, but that kind of works as long as you don't reach and try to use the iPad's trackpad. Overall, it was a fun experiment to use the iPad's keyboard on the Mac, but enough weirdness to get on my nerves. I figured it was a good time to visit the shelf of abandoned hardware. You know the one. It's like the island of misfit toys in your closet or garage. It's got like old airport routers, random switches, and headphones you no longer use. Because you don't listen to my advice, and in fact, I don't listen to my own advice, most of these products are not labeled to tell you whether anything is wrong with them. I had quite a few keyboards of various vintages on the shelf of abandoned hardware. I have the original wired extended keyboard from 2007, which I hated basically from the day I got it. I know a lot of people love that keyboard, but I can't stand it. It's squishy and it's not a bad keyboard, right? It's just not what I like. I also feel that the extended keyboards are too wide for my setup because it makes me wait, reach way too far to the right for my trackpad. I know Sandy says that she just puts it on the left and is able to do that, but I've uh, never worked that out in my brain. Might be something to try sometimes just to challenge myself. Well, next up in abandoned keyboards were two of the Apple wireless keyboards from 2007 that I mentioned at the beginning. Got out some of my AA batteries and I gave them a try. One of them connected easily over Bluetooth, but it seemed to have a problem with intermittent doubling of keys. 
I'd rather have the problem of pausing text than doubling of keys. That's way worse. The second one was recognized in Bluetooth settings in that I could see a graphic of it and I could see the MAC address listed, but for the life of me, I could not get it to connect. And then I found something glorious. When Kyle was in high school, he went through a brief period of PC gaming. I bought him a gaming keyboard called the Cooler Master Mechanical Cherry Blue Switches Gaming Keyboard. I've got the model number in the show notes. Anyway, I figured I'd give it a try. If you don't know what cherry blue switches are, they're these glorious, super clicky mechanical keys that make an awful racket when you're typing. It's perfect for audio podcasting. I can't believe I love this monstrosity. It is absolutely comedic how much noise it makes, but somehow that makes it even more enjoyable. I ran a little test. I typed out the words, now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country as one does if one learned to type from a typing book in the 1940s. I recorded the sound because I thought you might enjoy hearing it. Isn't that awesome? I especially like the click at the very end. That must have been when I hit the period. Now, I know that it sounds like I'm just banging the keys, but that's actually normal typing. I remapped the modifier keys using system preferences so that I could use command properly, and it became pretty natural to use the Cooler Master keyboard. This keyboard is so silly that the key I mapped to command doesn't even have any words on it. It's not like I mapped control to command. It actually has a flame on it. And since it's supposed to be for gaming, ASD and W are bright red keys with chevrons on them pointing left, down, right, and up. I'm a touch typist, so I don't need to see letters on the keys, but it's still pretty funny to look at. Sadly, there's no function on this keyboard either, so I can't use function backspace to do a true delete. Of course, the PC keyboard has a true delete key, but that was a lot to ask my poor little brain to go looking for it every time I needed it. Muscle memory is a powerful thing. I used the CM Storm Quickfire for a few days, and it was an enjoyable experience. I might bring it out from time to time for the comedy, but my new Magic keyboard showed up, so it was time to move on. I mentioned earlier that one of the cool things of these newfangled 2015 keyboards was that you simply plug them into Lightning and they magically connect. But the new one didn't magically connect when I plugged it in. I couldn't understand it. I went into Bluetooth settings. I didn't see it. I toggled Bluetooth off and back on again, and it didn't work. I tried plugging it into my dock, and then I tried two different ports on the Mac, but still no joy. So the new keyboard had arrived right before my Skype call with Adam Angst when I did chit-chat with him. I showed him that I, would have, uh, that I would have to use my CM Storm Quickfire as the keyboard during the show. I explained the problem with the new Magic Keyboard, and I yelled it up to him, and we noodled just for a moment or two about why it might not be working. We recorded, and I had to resist my temptation to use that crazy keyboard at all because it was so loud. At one point, I wanted to go to tidbits.com to look something up that he was talking about, and I had to type each character very slowly so it wouldn't make too much noise. After recording, I did something completely unheard of. I looked in the box and I found the manual for the keyboard. Now, 97.4% of you have been yelling the answer at your devices. You have to turn the keyboard on, dopey. I've been using this keyboard for nearly five years and I turn it off every time I throw it in my travel bag. So I know there's an on-off switch. For some reason, I completely forgot. So of course, the keyboard connected instantly when I plugged it in again. Guess what? It worked flawlessly with no lag at all. Since the problem was kind of intermittent, I went back to the old Magic Keyboard and I made sure that the delay was there. 
I swapped back to the new one and there was no lag. And then the next day, the new Magic Keyboard started having all kinds of janky problems. It was doing short pauses, doubling keys, and causing all sorts of random typos. Maybe that original Apple wireless keyboard wasn't broken after all, and it was some problem in interaction with the Mac. Well, I saw some instructions online to turn off key repeat and keyboard preferences to stop the keys from doubling, but you know something's still going janky in there. If I turn uh, the, the key repeat completely off, close system preferences and open it again, key repeat came back on where I had it originally. That started making me think maybe I had a software problem, which would be way harder to diagnose. I did eventually figure out what specific uh, key precedes the key pause. It's the caps lock key. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm the last person on earth who uses the caps lock key. I don't know how the rest of you people type without it being incredibly inefficient. But anyway, every single time I hit the caps lock key and then started to type, there was this long pause before anything else came out on screen. And finally, I had an idea. Maybe I should turn off the original Magic Keyboard, the one that was having the pauses. As soon as I turned off the old one, the new one started working flawlessly. I really think that the problem was indeed Bluetooth because that's the only way the old keyboard could have kept the new one from working properly. And it would explain why the old keyboard worked over a wired connection. Now, I usually like to end my tech stories with a bottom line that's sort of a summation of the article, a thumbs up or a thumb down, thumbs down on a product or a lesson to be learned. I'm not sure that there is one here, but I thought the experimentation was a lot of fun and it felt creative to try to make the different options work for me. And don't be surprised if you hear that clicky cooler magic keyboard in the background again someday. Well, with the excitement of hearing about my keyboards over, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. How do you do that? Email me, allison at podfeet.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Want to become a Patreon? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. How about you want to just do a one-time donation with PayPal? podfeet.com slash PayPal. If you want to join our community, the best place to go is podfeet.com slash Slack. Or if you prefer Facebook, you can go to podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in front of the live show, like Neil, the guy who got me to stay podcasting back in 2005, you can head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nusilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.